0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 20 in our 1 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Prophecy, Tongues, and Order in Worship, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 40. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to
1: see in these verses that we're looking at today? Uh, what an exciting chapter we're going to walk through today and a challenging chapter as well. I mean, there's a lot of history here at the modern Pentecostal or charismatic movement. A lot of questions come, uh, questions on cessationism. Are these kinds of signed gifts like tongues and prophecy still operating today? Uh, but for all of that, Paul gives uh, clear instructions on the management of these gifts during the apostolic era and timeless principles that we can take from it. So I'm excited to walk through it with you.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read chapter 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound— Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord." Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Andy, the first 25 verses of this chapter really are aimed at helping us properly understand gifts of tongues and prophecy. Mm -hmm. What role should our desires play in our spiritual gifts, and should we desire to attain gifts that we do not
1: have? Sure. At the beginning, he says eagerly desire uh, spiritual gifts um, and especially desire prophecy over tongues. He's making a clear case here for clarity. Uh, and prophecy is, is a clear word from God. So that's the case he's going to make. And so you should desire it. So the answer is yes. And just because something is a gift from the Lord doesn't mean you shouldn't desire it. Think, for example, of a single man who would like to be married someday. Uh, we're told very clearly that a prudent wife is a gift from the Lord. It's, that's a gift from the Lord. It doesn't mean you shouldn't seek her. Um, She'll want to be courted. She'll want to be sought. Okay? So he's going to make some efforts to go after it. And so those are not mutually exclusive. Just because God gives the gift doesn't mean you shouldn't seek it. And so – and I think he openly commands to seek greater gifts. Now, Andy,
0: how would you define the gift of prophecy and what purpose does Paul find in this gift?
1: All right, so the the whole Bible is prophetic. It's fundamentally a revelation of words from God. A prophet is one who is gifted to say, thus says the Lord, and what follows after that are words that God is willing for that prophet to speak into the hearts and minds of his redemptive people, uh, the Jews in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And so that's a definition of prophecy. It is a direct revelation of words from God. Now, those words can have to do with anything God chooses to talk about. Uh, in terms of a time orientation, they can have to do with the past, present, or future. However, there is a unique aspect of prophecy uh, most of us know about uh, when we just use the, the common uh, the word commonly is a prediction of the future. It's like, well, that's an amazing prophecy you're making, or let me make a prophecy. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Well, That's not a prophecy that's in the past. So we believe that prophecy can cover the past, but there is something unique about predicting the future. And it is one of the ways that the Lord set himself apart from the false gods in the book of Isaiah, 40 to 49, he has a contest with Israel's gods. And and he says, bring in your gods, let's have a contest. Let's see if any of them can predict the future like I can. Well, clearly God is the only one that can predict the future. He's the only timeless being. He's the only eternal being. Also, he's the only sovereign being. So someone can say X is going to happen, but if God says it will not happen, well, guess what? It's not gonna happen. And so that's, that's ultimately with the distinctiveness of prophecy is the ability to predict the future. However, not all prophecies Uh, have to do with the future. Some could be addressing an immediate circumstance that needs to be addressed, and God does that frequently in the Old Testament prophets. So the New Testament had prophets. They were both men and women, and they would directly speak the word of God. They would speak, and uh, the word would come. The New Testament, all of the words of the New Testament that are written down are prophecies, all of them, not necessarily about the future, but all of them are thus says the Lord, and so the prophets would write.
0: What shortcomings does Paul find then in the gift of tongues, especially if they're not translated or interpreted for the hearers?
1: Intelligibility. They're not, it's not clear. And so what is tongue? Let's talk about a tongue. Tongue is just uh, – we don't really, really use the word that way anymore. I think it means language. It's a language, an orderly progression of sounds that has meaning. It has meaning. Um, now, here's the thing. Every language has meaning. Every language has order. Every language has sequence, or it's what we will call gibberish okay? Gibberish. Like you can hear when a uh, a little toddler c- can reach up and uh, the reach the keys of a piano and starts making sounds. That's not music, all right? <laughs> That's musical <laughs> gibberish, right? But then you see somebody else sit down who's not only trained, but gifted and music flows mm-hmm. and there's an order and there's science to it. There's a science to music. So it is with languages. Any language can be studied and the repeated patterns and not repeated patterns uh, come out as language. Paul is talking about a language that you can speak fluently that you have never studied. Okay. That's the gift of language. Now it could be a known language or it could be some argue and it's possible a heavenly language or a non-human language, but it's still orderly. So that's what tongues is. Now, if tongues are spoken, but there is no translation, what's called interpretation, then it's, it's, it's not clear. It's, it's not a clear communication and that's a problem. So he didn't want tongues being used in public worship without a translator saying what was meant.
0: It's interesting on the heels of this description of those shortcomings, if there's not someone to interpret, that Paul says he wants all the Corinthians to speak in tongues. Why would he want that if prophecy is superior to tongues, according to verses four
1: and five? Well, it's still a gift. You know, you have good, better, best. And so, you know, it's a good gift. And we also know from the book of Acts, repeatedly, there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit then directly manifested by the supernatural speaking of tongues. Mm. Uh, we we see this with Cornelius and his his family and they immediately begin speaking in tongues. We see it at, at other times as well. And so it was a mark of the pouring out of the spirit on people, a mark of conversion. And it's a gift. It's a supernatural gift. Paul says, I'd like you to have it. If God if God wants to give you the ability to speak in a foreign language that you haven't studied um, and he chooses to do that for his own purpose, um, I wish that it would happen. I would like you to have that.
0: Now, verses six through 12 unfold or unpack for us what we were just talking about. Some of the challenges or problems with speaking in a foreign language in a public setting if that language is not translated hmm. for the hearers. Why is intelligible speech so important according to verses 7 and 8?
1: Well, it, it, in, in verse 7 and 8, he, he makes it plain that, um, that you have to understand what's going on. Uh, you know, uh, if if the tune that's being played uh, isn't played according to the science of music, a distinction made in the notes, verse 7, you won't recognize the tune. Um you know, that's how, you know, Wes, you're a skillful musician and, and tunes follow sequence. And if you don't know it yet, you can't sing to it. But once you learn it, then it's like, well, I know that song. You know, it's a mighty fortress or that's, you know, uh, great is I faithfulness. We recognize the chord progression and the notes. And that's what Paul's saying in verse seven. The issue comes down to intelligibility. Now let's get to the bigger issue. The bigger issue is the role of the mind of thoughts Hmm. in Christian life. As you think, so you will live. And we are transformed in our living by being transformed in our thinking. And that's done by the ministry of the word. The word changes minds. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So if what's happening is, unintelligible, if there's no conscious thought, if there's no ideas that are coming, it has no effect uh, uh, toward salvation. It has no effect toward justification or sanctification. We're not growing at all. We need intelligibility. We need the word of God.
0: What more do we learn from verses 6 through 12 then about the importance of someone being present to translate these tongues if they're going to be utilized?
1: Yeah, okay. So he's talking again about the issue of intelligibility. And he says, look, if you have tongues going on and, and people are speaking in tongues uh, and uh, someone comes in uh, and doesn't understand what's going on, it, it just seems, seems like – like mayhem, uh, it, it, there's nothing beneficial coming. Um, they will not understand what you're saying. Your mind is, uh, he he says in another place, unfruitful. Um, there's there is no no edification, and that's one thing I want to say. Uh, he says again and again the purpose of all spiritual gifts is edification. It's the mm. building up of the body. That's why spiritual gifts are given. Verse three, verse five, verse twelve, verse seventeen. All of them use this language of building up or edification. So you're not edified if you don't understand what's Happening, it doesn't help you. It doesn't build you up. And so he wants clarity. And that comes in one of two ways either tongues are used and immediately translated or interpreted then benefit comes. Or prophecies are given right in that self-same language in the vernacular and they know right away what's being said. Mm. And at one point he says if, if the, their hearts are laid open and bare and they and they fall down and say God is in this place. So we want that clear ministry because again of the importance of the mind, the importance of thinking. We have to understand the gospel in order to believe it. And by believing it then we're saved. So intelligibility is the issue.
0: Well, it's also such a help hopeful interpretive key for us as we seek to understand what Paul is unpacking really in this whole chapter is uh, his primary aim or his single concern driving all of these commands is the building up of the church
1: through the use of these gifts.
0: What remedy does Paul give to those who are speaking in tongues now with no interpretation?
1: Well, he wants them to stop. He wants them not to do it in public worship. Now, uh, he doesn't want all of that going on in public worship, but he, he does say in another place, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So it implies that, that Paul himself was speaking in tongues either in corporate worship with a translator or by himself without one. He doesn't require the use of translation uh, if you're not in a public set, setting. And so some people then think that there is at least implied here a private prayer language and that may or may not be the case. Uh, one preacher, Alistair Begg, said if he's forbidding all this public use of tongues, but he says I speak in tongues more than all of you, it must have been in private, and that implies some kind of private use. So the the use of, use of tongues in public should be with a translator. If there is no translator, it should not be done in public. And that's where I have problems with some charismatic churches um, or Pentecostal churches where they don't follow that rule. There's a clear prohibition here. They need to stop. It needs to be shut down why does
0: Paul argue in verses 14 and 15 that it's far better to pray or speak with full understanding of what you're saying
1: well again it goes it goes to the issue of of the mind we believe as you think so you will you will live um, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved but how can they call on one they have not believed in and how can they believe in someone of whom they have never, Heard, all right, stop right there. Heard, heard in a language they understand? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's implied there. You tell me about Jesus. Tell me who he is, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he did this miracle or that miracle, or he walked on water, still the storm, or that he, he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Really, what did he say? And then you say some of it. He taught parables. What's a parable? You give him an example. All right, well, guess what? This is all information. He's learning about Jesus. There's a basic biography of Jesus being communicated intelligently, intelligibly. Mm-hmm. How can they preach unless, how can, how can someone hear unless someone preaches it intelligibly? And so therefore, all over the world, the Lord has had to send out missionaries who have settled into communities, have learned the heart language of the people, and then been able to speak in that heart language, intelligible messages. So behind all of this is the transformation of the life by the changing of the mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that happens by the ministry of the word of God.
0: I love that. And verses 16 and 17 really uh, turn uh, to show us Paul's concern for the one who's hearing. What does Paul say about others who hear
1: one speak in a tongue without understanding what he's saying? Well, we want to be able to agree. He says, amen, if somebody says something, and and I'm like, I'm I'm on board with that. Amen. Amen to that. Now, we're not a church that calls out amen all right I, I don't mind it i like it actually <laughs> as i'm preaching but you can tell from non-verbals at least and sometimes and recently i've not been preaching i'm on a study leave and i and i'm in the congregation and i can hear there's it's like the congregation's a living thing hmm. and when the preacher says something that that hits them in a new way you hear different sounds there's different breathing there is an, an ascent to what's being said paul says they openly say amen Hmm. They say, all right, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. I stand with that. I'm, I'm wholeheartedly concurring. Well, I can't do that if I don't know what you're talking about. So, you um, know, I've been in that setting. I've been all over the world. I've been in corporate settings uh, in China, a good example, uh, where I didn't understand a word. And honestly, like Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, my mind was unfruitful. Hmm. I was looking around at the setting, I was looking at the windows, I was looking at what kind of light fixtures they had, but whatever in the the world they were talking about meant nothing to me. Mm. And there would be some moving moments in which the Chinese Christians were, were, were clearly moved and then we were calling out or whatever passed me by. I had no idea what was going on because my mind was unfruitful. It was unintelligible to me. Paul's talking about that exact experience here.
0: And Paul continues that same argument through verse 18 into verse 19. How does Paul use his experience with both tongues and prophecy to drive home his point here?
1: Yeah, he says, first of all, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So, you know, Paul Paul had an interesting side to him. You know, he, he... Let's be honest, he boasts, all right? He does a lot of that from time to time, but he deals with it. Sometimes he says, look, I had to do it. I had to say, I suffered more than anyone or I worked harder than all of them, Hmm. you know, this kind of thing. But here he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. It's like, I don't know how he knows that, but he's a prophet, he's an apostle, he knows that thing. So what we get from that is Paul did the gift of tongues. He did speak in tongues, and he was grateful for it. He thanked God for it. He considered it a gift, but he would rather, he says, speak five intelligible words, like I don't know, Christ is risen as three. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I don't know how many words that is. Anyway, the point is I want to communicate actual doctrines. I'd rather speak a few Intelligible words than ten thousand unintelligible words. There'd be uh, no value. You can multiply a hundred million unintelligible words. Words only have meaning, uh, or words only have have value or impact if the meaning comes uh, comes across.
0: Now, verses twenty through twenty-five uh, help us see a different facet of why Paul is so concerned about their use of this gift. What new point does Paul make about tongues in verses 20 through 25?
1: Well, he says here that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Prophecy is for believers to edify and build them up. It's an interesting statement. Um, How are tongues – a sign for unbelievers. Well, you have to understand the quote that he gives us from the book of Isaiah, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, uh, et cetera. That's Isaiah 28, uh, 11 and 12. If you read the context there in Isaiah 28, Paul is, is uh, criticizing the Jewish leaders that were mocking Isaiah. Uh, uh, sorry, Isaiah. I should have said Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet was criticizing the leaders who were mocking his clear uh, a proclamation of biblical truths, uh, prophetic truths, as though it was baby talk. Hmm. He's saying, who does he think he's instructing? Like children just weaned from the breast? For he's saying do and do, rule and rule, little here, little there, kavla kav la kav, sav la sav. It's the Hebrew. It's like baby talk. And he's like, fine, fine. I have sent my prophet, Isaiah. He is speaking to you in clear Hebrew. He is giving you clear biblical instruction." But if you don't listen to him, I'm going to speak to you through a foreign tongue. I'm going to bring men whose language you will not understand. And then the word of God to you will be like that. It'll be like kavla kav, blah, 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 gibberish. But it isn't. It's going to be Babylonian or Chaldean. It's going to be Assyrian. Mm. And what is God saying when the Assyrians or when the Babylonians, let's go Babylonians, are in the streets of Jerusalem, when they're right outside Solomon's temple speaking, that is impending judgment. They're there because God sent foreigners to speak their foreign language in the holy city. And why? Because of their wickedness, their sin. He's going to bring judgment. It's the very thing he predicted in Deuteronomy. He said, you're going to come in, you're going you're to go after the sins of the Canaanites, and then I'm going to have to bring other people of strange tongues to come and speak their language in your cities. And the language will be ultimately one of judgment. So Paul's picking up on that, and he's saying, basically, this inbreaking of the Holy Spirit, this Pentecostal age, is a warning to the entire human race of a far greater judgment than the Jews ever experienced, the end of the world and Mm. judgment day to come. And so the coming of supernatural signs and wonders is a marking of the coming age. And you better get on board. The kingdom of God is at hand repent hmm. it's a warning isn't repent for the kingdom of god is at hand the king is coming you better get on his side so that's how tongues are a warning to unbelievers to come to faith in christ
0: and really that's where he uh, ends this first section of the chapter showing how prophecy tends to strip people bare and expose mm-hmm. their sin how is that and why is that really helpful as Paul is making this point to the church in how they should think about these gifts.
1: Right. So in comes the unbeliever. Um, there's nothing but tongues going on. And that's actually Paul's argument here is, is a little difficult to follow because if tongues are a sign for unbelievers, uh, but then he argues that if they come in, they're not going to be helped by it. Um, he, he wants them to be saved. That's what he's getting at. He wants them to be rescued from the, from the wrath to come. How are they going to be rescued? By believing the gospel. And they're not going to hear it through people speaking in tongues, but it not being being uh, interpreted. Hmm. So they come into your congregation and there are prophets speaking clear words of prophecy and they are cut to the heart. As it says in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, and they say, brothers, what should we do? They're convicted. Their hearts are laid bare. And they say, "Surely God is in this place." And I'm not ready to meet God. I need to believe in Him. How can I be saved? That's the good outcome. If, on the other hand, they come in, it's nothing but tongues uninterpreted. They'll think you're out of your minds. You're crazy. By the way, you and I both know we've used this uh, this issue of this these these verses here as the the rule of intelligibility. Uh, the we want uh, our services not to be seeker sensitive, but we've said seeker sensible. It should make sense to the the seeker. Somebody coming in. Will look around and say, God is in this place. Mm. And based on this chapter, it has to do with orderliness and clarity. Mm. So they're they're hearing the word of God clearly, they're seeing good order, and they are cut to the heart and they're converted.
0: For the remainder of the chapter, Paul deals with this idea of orderly corporate worship. And in verse 26, we see this same motive and uh, function of these gifts uh, being highlighted again, that it's the building up of the church that Paul has in view. What rule does Paul lay down to address the use of tongues in a corporate setting? And how does this solve the problem he's been arguing against since the beginning of the chapter as we look at verses 27 and
1: 28? Okay, so he's, he's just giving very clearly, uh, clear rules that need to be followed. You know, uh, when you come together, uh, there are different ones that have something to offer. For a hymn, a word of instruction, revelation, tongue interpretation. First of all, your motive should be from 1 Corinthians 13, love, and from 1 Corinthians 12, edification. Also, here in chapter 14, you're out of love, your desire should be to use your gift to edify, to build up the body. Now, that should cut off any of the egomaniac type things where you, you want to be up front, you want everybody looking at you. Mm. It's not about you. It's about building up the the church. So if you do something, make sure it's done for the edification of the strengthening of the church. Then there's practical uh, rules. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time, not all at once. And there should be an interpreter. If there is no interpreter uh, present, then the speaker should keep quiet and speak to himself and God. Hmm. All right. So just Keep it to yourself. Now with both tongues and prophecy, he's going to say the gifts are subject to your control. Don't tell me there is nothing you could do. Now that gets at the whole ecstatic pagan babble thing that was going on with priests and priestesses in the cults and the, the shrines in paganism in Greece before the gospel ever came there. There are these ecstatic moments where they're in a frenzy, like whirling dervish type things. And, and they would even use alcohol and sex to get all juiced up and all whatever excited. And they're saying they're having an actual like encounter with the God or goddess. Mm. Say so that's not what's going on here. That's not how God works. God is a God of order. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of truth. And so tongues should be done this way prophecy should be done this way everything done decently and in good order that's what he's getting at here
0: in verse 29 is where he gives a similar instruction regarding mm-hmm. prophecy so yeah. 27 and 28 deals with tongues yeah. 29 then let two or three prophets speak and mm-hmm. let the others weigh What is said again? The idea being that things would be done orderly and in a way that, like
1: you said, is intelligible. It's understandable by those who are present. Let's be honest: if two people are speaking at the same time, you can't follow it. (laughs) You know, somebody has to be quiet, and then there's order. And so he even gives order that somebody, one of the prophets, is speaking, and a a prophecy comes to the other. Then he should wait until it's the right time, and then the the one should stop and say, "You go ahead, brother," et cetera. And so they're going to do these uh, the. Um, the gift of prophecy and, and do it in an orderly way because there's no point in two prophets speaking at the same time. And again, you can't say, I couldn't help myself. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but he'll wait for you hmm. and, and he'll wait for you for the right time. He knows not to interrupt. So, so there's just some good manners here.
0: How do those verses that you've just been referencing, verses 30 through 32 Mm -hmm. there, help to keep order in public worship? And what do verses 33 and 40 teach us about God in relation to public worship?
1: Okay, so to answer the second question, first, God is a God of of order, not of disorder, but of peace. God is a very orderly being. Mm -hmm. I remember I was talking to my kids. We homeschool our kids, and we're talking about math, and one of my kids was just not a big fan of math. And I was just trying to explain how orderly the universe is. And um, on my, uh, my desk in my office is not a desk, but actually a table on the, and on top of the table is a big sheet of glass. And I tried to explain, it was, um, it was my, my daughter, I was trying to explain to my daughter, I said, I can't even give you a sense of the silicon dioxide, uh, the, the, uh, the molecules that make up this glass and how if you were within the matrix of this glass structure, you would look as far as your little microscopic eye could see and there'd be glass molecules in an orderly, perfect matrix in every direction. Mm -hmm. That's the material that we have right in front of us here. And the whole world is like that. God is a God of order. And he also wants humans to order with each other. That's why parents teach their children good manners. That's why we don't interrupt. That's why we use table manners when we eat. There's an orderliness to things. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. There's an orderliness that comes to that. Sin is very disorderly. Sin is destructive. Mm. And we want to see order. Everything, you know, again, Ephesians 2.10, God in Christ is bringing all things together and in under one head and making them one in Christ. There's an orderliness to everything.
0: What restriction does Paul then place on women in verses 34 and 35? And how does Paul seek to humble the proud congregation or individual in verses 36 to 38?
1: Right. So the women – this is one of the two really controversial women's passages in 1 Corinthians 11 – the other being 1 Corinthians 11, uh, or in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. In 11, it's about head coverings. And it says, I want you to know the head of every man is woman, the head of uh, Christ is, the head of every man is Christ, the head of uh, a woman is man, the head of Christ is God and all that. So headship, order. Um, and the order, it works in, biblically in um, both in the home and in the church. So men are to lead, husbands are to lead at home. They're to lead their wives. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5. And then uh, men are to lead in the local church. Um, he says in 1 first, first Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. There's an order of things. Now, what we need to understand is this order does not... In any way imply inferiority. Mm. He does not say men are superior to women, but there is an orderliness to it, and that order is essential um, for the local church to communicate. Now, the way he uh, communicates it here is on a specific issue. Um, the I think the head coverings is a is a timeless principle of male leadership in the local church, displayed in a temporary um, pattern of of a certain kerchief or head covering that was done in a certain way so the timeless pattern is male leadership the temporary pattern is the actual physical head covering that's how what we argued in 1 corinthians 11. the issue here is is of women speaking up in a certain way at a certain time it isn't an absolute women speaking in churches it's it's that it's not that i think there are implications that women prophets were prophesying and that women were praying in the church I had the feeling they were together all day, and I think people would bring different things at different times. We have a very tightly timed 90-minute thing. I think they, they were together. I went overseas to Africa, and mm. I, I, spent, I spent the day, Sunday, at church. And so you could imagine women aren't silent the whole time. That's just not what's going on. However, in this case— the prophecy comes forth as I defined it, thus says the Lord, a prophet, both men and women were prophets, would speak, but then the other prophets would weigh carefully what was said, what was the weighing. They had to be sure, as it says in Romans 12, 6, I think it is, if your gift is prophecy, you should do it by the analogia or the analogy of faith in other words it should fit into what we know is the Word of God keep in mind the New Testament was didn't exist it hadn't been hadn't been codified yet it was developing Paul hadn't written some of the epistles yet um, and so you had to be able to evaluate to weigh whether this new word from God was valid or not. Did it fit in or not? First John 4.1 says, "Brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God." And then he gave doctrinal tests in First John. If, you know, if a spirit uh, points to the incarnation, you know, holiness, things like that. That's how you can know. Same thing here so there has to be a weighing there's a there's a free flowing you know speaking there's tongues going on with interpretation there's prophecies going on okay how can we know whether it's true or not don't just accept anything evaluate it test it now here's the point who should do the evaluation well it says here the other prophets but then it says Women shouldn't do, should not do that evaluation. I think the silence here is not a universal silence, but a weighing. Women are not to do the weighing. That's an elder function. That's a, that's a, a function by uh, the prophets who are men. They're gonna weigh and say, yes, this is a valid prophecy. So mm-hmm. that's what I think the silence here. It's a limitation of women in a leadership role. Now, in our day and age, it's offensive. Because uh, in the West, Uh, we really do tie significance and worth and value to achievement. We tie it to what you are able to do or allowed to do. And if you are limited, like there's a glass ceiling for women, you're limited in certain roles, you're saying you are a lesser human. You are of less value. Nothing could be further from the truth. We do not believe that pastors have more value than non-pastors. We don't believe that those with the gift of prophecy have more value than those that don't have it. Paul argued against that view in 1 Corinthians 12. Not at all, they don't have more or less value. It's just a role and there's orderliness to it. And so we need to push back on feminism as it pushes at the word of God. Mm. There are gender-based roles in the home and in the church. They are not demeaning, they're not degrading, they need to be elevated, they need to be embraced and celebrated really. It's It's not bad news or whatever, it's order. And it's beautiful and we need to do it. And we do do it in our church. We have men clearly leading on Sunday mornings and women gladly submitting to it. And that's uh, the pattern that we followed from the Bible. On the issue of how Paul seeks to humble them, he says, look, first of all, you're not the first local church there ever was. I mean, the gospel didn't originate with you. You're not the first church. You're not the only church. We need to look around and see what the other churches are doing. You need to realize that as in all the congregation congregations, women are silent there. They're not doing the evaluation. Uh, as in all the congregations, they're following these rules. So you need to fit in. Um, and so he's humbling them. He's saying, look, Also, this is a test of, you want to know a test of a prophet, let any prophet in Corinth there acknowledge that what I am writing to you as an apostle is the word of the Lord. Well that's pretty bold. Hmm. Paul wasn't shy about his gift. He knew very well he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He might have even had a sense that the epistles he was writing were going to be protected and timeless. He knew the writing tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament, and so he may knew he m- maybe knew that he was in the process of writing the word of God. And he's saying you want to you want to be recognized as a valid prophet then acknowledge that the prohibitions and commands I'm giving you are from the Lord hmm. Jesus Christ. And if you do that you can keep being a prophet. If not, you're going to be ignored. So that's that's pretty humbling. I want to say a word about the gift of prophecy. It's kind of, uh, these two gifts, tongues and prophecy, are very controversial. Um, there are some cessationist people that believe that the gifts have ceased. And I'm not that way. I don't think that we can make a biblical case for cessationism. But I do make a more practical. I do raise questions, all right? I think it's valid to say, what is going on in all the other churches? Let's look around. What's going on in church history? I think it's valid valid to look at that, not just at the scripture, Um, because the scripture, the gifts were going right to the end of the uh, apostolic age. And so we don't have cessationism in the Bible. So with tongues, I would say this. It needs to be proven to not be gibberish. If it's just repetition of seven or eight syllables in in versing order, that's not a language. I've heard languages I don't understand, but I know they're languages. Mm. You can just tell. The breadth of the different sounds you're hearing, the the fluidity, whatever you're hearing, a language you don't understand, but it's a language, all right? So it's got to be a language, all right? And beyond that, it needs to be interpreted. or cannot be used publicly, all right? Furthermore, I would say about tongues, it should never be stated that if you do not speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. Paul implied when he said, do all speak in tongues? We don't all speak in tongues. So he means all Christians, not all Christians speak in tongues. So that's set that aside. That's the, some versions of Pentecostalism taught that that's false. Now let's get to prophecy. Uh, prophecy also is part of the controversial, those controversial gifts. Um, Sovereign Grace churches, others have open mics and prophets come and speak. I think it's reasonable to, to urge that prophets um, be able to predict the future at least once to validate their gift. If they cannot predict the future, I don't know how I can know that they are a prophet and not just a reader of the Bible, all right? I'm a preacher. I read the scriptures. I can, make, I can make true spiritual pronouncements based on the scripture that I know are true, but that doesn't make me a prophet. It makes me a teacher preacher, all right? If I say, I think that God wants husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, I'm just reading Ephesians 5. I'm preaching Ephesians 5. Uh, But if I'm claiming to be a prophet and I'm saying, men of FBC Durham, God is saying to you, you are uniquely not loving your wives. This is a unique problem to you, similar to what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you have forsaken your first love. Mm. I don't know that that's true of this or that or the other local church. A prophet could know that. But if I'm not proven as a prophet, how do I have the right to say that to the church? Predict the future in a way that can be measured like when Agabus predicted the famine that would come on the entire Roman world. Hey, that can be proven. You do that, I'll know that you, like Agabus, are a prophet. I think that's a valid test of prophecy for the 21st century.
0: Well, there's much for us to consider in these 40 verses of chapter 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians. Any final thoughts for us today, Andy?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the bottom line here is the centrality, the importance of the clear word of God done in such a powerful way that people are cut to the heart and fall down and say, surely God is in this place. Hmm. I hope to preach in that way, I hope, Wes, I know that you hope to lead songs and lead worship in that way, that people have a sense of an encounter mm-hmm. with the infinite living God and that be done in a in a beautiful, orderly, clear way uh, and that outsiders would come and feel that and be impacted by that and fall down in our midst and be saved. That's what I yearn for and also for all of you that are hearing that that would happen in your churches as well.
0: Well, this has been episode 20 in our First Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 21, entitled, Raised from the Dead in Accordance with the Scriptures, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you
1: all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom.